I've been going through the NX book. Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, I, you know, I'm still a little too dumb for, I got to go back. You know, me and chat GPT are having a lot of conversations about stuff. I can, I can lock in my Steven persona for the whole. It is your zoom name. So it'll be, if I like forget, I'll just, I'll just hover and it'll be right there. So I'm not going to lie, Steve. If you forget my name, I'm going to be a bit offended. You know, well, I, I meant, I meant if I should call you Steve or Steven. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Beam Radio. I am one of your several co-hosts for today, Sophie DiBenedetto. I am joined by Stephen Nunez. Hey, Stephen. Hello. As well as Bruce Tate. Hey, Bruce. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And before we move on to hand it over to Bruce, who's going to introduce our very special guest. As always, we want to shout out and thank our sponsors, Groxio and Underyord. We don't have Lars with us here today, but we do have Bruce from Groxio. So do you want to give us a quick update on what's going on in Groxio land? Yeah, so for, for Groxio subscribers, you should be seeing the site redesign in progress. And by the time that this is posted, you should start to see the beginnings of our main course design. So um, all that all that look is going to change and is going to look much more like a, a full formal course. And so we hope you're enjoying enjoying that process. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, if any of our listeners have yet to check out Groxio somehow, I cannot encourage you enough to head on over there, especially with a beautiful site redesign in the works. Very excited to see that. Uh, will everything still be green? I do really like the green that's associated with Graxio. Green and orange, you know. Uh, so Paulo Vallum, who's Jose's brother, is helping us with this site uh, redesign. And it does have a little bit more of a Brazilian flair. And you'll see <laughs> uh, many more splashes of orange than you used to, um, which is cool. kind of cool. But yes, the, the core color is still going to be green. Awesome. Looking forward to checking that out. Uh, all right, Bruce, why don't we stay with you? I will kick it over and you can introduce our very special guest. Yes, Sophie, thanks. And so it's not a secret that, that many of us have come over from the Ruby environment and also from coding schools. And our guest today is Steve Bussey. He's got a couple of books on Ruby, but the most interesting one is the one that is in beta right now. It's from Ruby to Elixir. Did I get that right, Stephen? You did. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that, that I want to talk about after we get your Elixir story is this idea of com that coming over from Ruby, there are a bunch of things that make Elixir look like it should be a smooth transition, which it often is, but also a simple transition, which it's often not. So I want to kind of talk about this idea, the, the, the whole concept of coming over from a language that in many ways is similar on the surface, but where Elixir has a lot more going on under the hood and the complications that we get, but also the, the, the kind of the, the relevance of the whole Ruby community in the Elixir community and why the Ruby ideas are compelling in Elixir and why the Elixir ideas are compelling in Ruby. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Awesome. I love that. I'm very excited to, to uh, get in there and talk about all this. Yeah, we would love to start this with your Elixir story. Yeah. So, hey, everyone. I'm Steve Bussey. 
Uh, I started Elixir, I'm trying to think now, like what year it would have been. I feel like it's like 2017 type of time frame. And I was working at Sales Loft and I'd been there for a couple of years at this point. And um, I I would say that we were like the a, a very classic Ruby on Rails application. Like if, like if you name all the normal things that you did in a Ruby on Rails application circa 2014 to 2017, like we were doing all of those things. Um, and at, at a point we started doing um, some microservices and exploring with that. And that sort of opened the gateway for us to maybe explore other languages. And I had a coworker, Ben, who uh, was just super into this, uh, you know, this new thing that he had read about called Elixir. And he was, uh, we were doing a little bit, a little bit of telecom stuff that was like, uh, it wasn't related to actually like powering telecom, but it was related to like the real time aspects of being on phone calls and um, doing some things with those phone calls and being able to like listen into those phone calls and do coaching and whatnot. And he was really into this idea of like, hey, we should try Elixir for that because of all these benefits that we're going to get with it that I'm reading about. Let's go and try this. And uh, he brought that up for probably six months before I was finally like, all right, like I'm 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 ready for this right now. Like like let's let's go on this adventure. And I, I tried to uh, learn Elixir two or three times. I didn't. I wasn't actually on that project, so I didn't have something at work to work on with Elixir. But I was trying to learn it on my free time, asking questions as I went. And um, I, I like your point about like smooth, but not simple, because I felt like things were going smooth, but I was struggling to like do something with it or to like really grasp the concepts. And so, like I said, it was like on that, like I tried it like two or three times, couldn't quite get it all to click. And then on that fourth time, when I actually also had a real, a real project to work on, like pieces sort of fell together and um you know, at, after that project, I was like, all right, I get it. I can actually like build stuff with this. And after that point, um, we basically got it integrated into the microservice stack in basically what that means is like all the things that needed to happen from a business perspective were handled, which means we could write applications on it. So like all the observability and like all the different things that needed to be happening on a technical level were handled. And so we would actually start building applications on it. And then from like 2019 on uh, until I left, my teams were exclusively Elixir uh, and we had our own little like niche carved out that, that we were working in. And so this was a pretty interesting time, right? Because you're on the leadership team for, for a language that, that you um, or for a team implementing a language that you don't have a lot of experience with yet. Right. You have some pretty high performance challenges right out of the gate with with sales loft can you talk about what some of those were yeah so when at this point by the time we actually started using elixir at sales loft we were you know four years into the company it was probably a 20 like 15 to 20 million error business which means we had a lot of users on it and so and and any features that we rolled out like we had concepts of feature flagging and soft rollouts and whatnot, but like we we rolled out to all customers at, basically at one time. So, you know, you, you'd go from day one 
to like, you know, I'm, I'm starting to roll it out. And day two or day five is like, all right, everyone has access to it. And, you know, maybe you're talking, you know, 15,000 users or something like that. And then, you know, by the end, we were looking at like maybe like 100,000 users. So just like that growth of the company, like even though we didn't know it that well, we had to, sh you know, we weren't shipping a, a 10 user application. We were shipping a 10,000 user application from day one and integrating that uh, into our existing stack as well, which actually was probably the easier part of the whole thing uh, because we had patterns on how to do that. But, uh, you know, just the the fact that we had these performance considerations from day one was was definitely a challenge. And we brought the app down a few times. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was pretty interesting that when you proposed the book, uh, the first book at the Pragmatic Bookshelf, um, I was the editor at that time, and we got a few bristles at the idea of real-time Phoenix, right? Uh, before people saw the con the content of that book, they said, well, isn't, isn't Elixir Erlang, is it like this, this something like selling oh, wet water or something like that, right? But then they actually got a sense of the content of the book and that this, this kind of new person on the scene was actually writing about the high-performance challenges in building an ecosystem like this and people kind of settled in. So could you talk a little bit about what drove you to write Real-Time Phoenix and how that kind of snuck into like a Linuser comp is, is one of the, the basic um, most popular trainings. Yeah. So I, I felt um, number one, I would say I felt very lucky because it was that, I mean, it was a timing thing in some regards. Like I had just been working on this thing and there wasn't something already existing that covered it. And if I didn't do it, like within a year, someone else would have. Right. So it's like, I was in a little bit of the right place at the right time. And where I just come from that made me want to write the book was um, two two different projects that I had been working on at work that both involved uh, shipping real-time updates uh, to all of our customer base. And on the surface, uh, Phoenix makes a lot of things very easy in that regard. Like Phoenix channels out of the box. I mean, you can get something like that up and running and you know, I don't want to speak for people, maybe like two hours or so, you know, on, on like the, the features are really, really solid. But when you ship that into an environment that has, you know, you know, tens of thousands of users or even, even thousands, but like you're shipping into that environment and you just hit challenges and you hit challenges that don't have anything to do with Phoenix. You know, you have challenges just of this idea of, all right, when I'm deploying something that's real time, it means I need to always have a connection, which means I always need to be ready for the connection to go down and come back up, which means I always need to be ready for the user to be authorized, which means my authorization server needs to be able to handle potentially 80,000 people coming into it, or I need to design my system better so that the authorization server doesn't get hit like that, right? You have these challenges that doesn't have anything to do with, with building, like actually building the Phoenix channels, but has everything to do with building the real-time app and things like your data pipeline. How do you move data through your application so that you can get it pushed down to the user? And um, those are those are not challenges that a framework is ever going to be like, hey, everything is solved. Here you go. Just plug this in and it's good to go. 
because their challenges are often that have to do with like how your application is constructed as a whole or how your users work or how your application is delivered to them. And so their challenges you have to like solve as a engineer working at a company and not something that someone else necessarily will solve for you. Although they can give you advice on how to do it. And all that transpired into like, I want to write this book. And so basically, I'm, so get, get, getting back to the question of like, why did I write it? Like all of that, I was just like, wow, I, I learned all of that by failing, by bringing the application down, by, um, you know, trying to roll out, having it go badly, needing to like pull back the rollout, fix the problem, roll out again, having that go badly, pull it back, do fix it, do that two or three times, bring the application down once or twice in there. And um, I got to the point where I was like, all right, I want to write a book that is targeted at beginners, but also even people that have already done this will learn things from it. And even people that think they've already done it and know all this stuff will learn something from it. And so I wanted to have like different levels of expertise in this book. And I feel like it really came through well in the end. And I, I liked the, the product because of that. I'm curious, you you said that this book was kind of inspired by these lived experiences uh, that you had shipping things out to production in this new framework. Uh, any particular experiences or horror stories that you want to share? Yeah, so the one that comes to mind immediately, I guess I, I'll give two. The, the first one that's mm -hmm. very simple is, um, you know, using something like uh, having an API that is... Um, Pushed, like data is pushed to an API and then that a that data is then pushed out to users. So you have this uh, um, you know flow of data in pushing out. And one of the steps along the way was enriching that data from an a up from another API that we controlled. We controlled all the different points in it, but you know it was it was going to a microservice and fetching some data. And initially we were just like, hey, let's throw that in a task.async and call it a day and like uh, uh, we'll, we'll assemble all the data, then push the data packet out. And then, um, I don't know how long it took, but let's say not very long until we actually realized that, oh, Hey, having a completely uncontrolled amount of parallelism to our, to our APIs is a bad idea. And it, that brought an app down. Uh, luckily that was quick to fix. Cause you just, uh, you know, stop doing that and then fix the problem. So that, that was a fun one that taught me like, Hey, we need to be intentional about this idea of a data pipeline. We need to think about the concurrency and parallelism through it. And we need to be able to like have levers that we can adjust on demand if we want to, to say, all right, hey, we need to crank this up because we're having some backups and we have bandwidth all over the place, but this is the bottleneck. Or, hey, everything else is the bottleneck or something else is the bottleneck. We need to bring this down because it's doing too, too much parallelism. And then... Another one that was fun was um, when we were doing our our authorization, we had like this JWT scheme where we got a token from an authorization server and then that gave you access to the to the system. And those tokens for like security reasons were 10 minute lifespan. Um, and we hit this point where we'd see these spikes of just like 60,000 requests all made and our system was not handled uh not set up to handle that uh that amount of all all literally the same second of time 60,000 requests and what we realized is um when we were doing deployments of our real time system 
the connections were coming down in mass and then coming back up in mass and all the users were, it was like very simple logic. Those are saying, Hey, go fetch a token and then go use it, which is not the right logic. So we ended up building something that was effectively, um, always keeping the token up to date while the channel was open, but it was also doing it in a staggered way. So you don't have, um, uh, predictable spikes you want it to be like a flat uh curve effectively throughout the whole you know a 10 minute window versus having like every like two minutes you have a big spike something like that is, is really dangerous so both those things don't have anything to do with phoenix channels but they have everything to do with with real time and like those are things that brought the app down uh that was very very painful to learn so the the real time phoenix book um, focus a lot on some of the real-time primitives. So the WebSocket layer and sort of like the channel abstraction. Um, and now we're building a lot of stuff with live view, right? Most people wouldn't necessarily build um, channels by default. So we kind of push messages down in JSON, decode them on the client side, right? We have this, this new um, abstraction essentially, or another layer on top of, of our channels. Um, I, you know, I still think your book is incredibly relevant because, you know, understanding sort of like the guts of it is important. Um, what have you seen in LiveView that sort of uh, does things really well? Um, what things sort of from your learnings or your experience or like special cases that come to mind where like a LiveView wouldn't work in this sort of place? Just curious to get your thoughts in general on on how, how we're doing with LiveView and taking advantage of that real-time uh, infrastructure. Yeah, I, th I think I have a good, interesting perspective here because... Um, I spent about 18 months building a startup where every, this was, um, you know, when live view a little bit after live view was like starting. So it was like stabilizing, but it, uh, you know, there were still breaking changes after that point, but it was like, Hey, I'm going to go full live view on this thing because we, it just, it fit really well. And it made a lot of sense. And we still, we, we, it was like a, a live view plus react combo, because some of the UI stuff was like really complex that I did not want to build from scratch, like complex drag and drop grid editors and stuff like that. I was like, all right, I'm going to find a react library that does this. I'm going to build off that. But, uh, it, it worked great. I mean, it was, it was, it was probably the best system that I've ever written. Like I was really happy with the end result of it and live view made it really easy during that time to add new features maintenance was pretty easy i definitely had moments where i was like i felt like i was on a frontier in a way of like hey i want to do this thing i want to do um nested forms that you can like that like are dynamic like you can you know think of like a recursive data structure that you're managing via a live view interface and i was like how do i build this right and it and there was nothing and so it was like all right i'm I am figuring this out. I'm figuring out how to do all the things. And that, that was fun. It wasn't actually that bad in terms of time. Like um, a lot of the stuff I needed was there. And then some of the complex stuff I had to build, it was great. So uh, that I, I wish I was, I wish I was in a place to do that again. I think this gets into a little bit of like where live view, like where you might not want to use live view is um, if you're supporting more than one, client so if you're supporting just a web client or you're supporting you know uh even yeah i'd say i'd say web it's like live view is great i'm doing very chrome extension heavy things and i actually had a podcast once about using live view in a chrome extension but i think more and more 
even that would not be allowed now. Google has this policy of like no external code. And I think that that means like iframes as well. So you wouldn't even be able to use like, like bring in the live view stuff into an application in, in a Chrome extension. So for me, I'm like, all right, I'm going to need to have an API. I'm going to need to re-implement everything. If I was to use live view, maybe I shouldn't use it here. And even though I want to, it's sort of like the responsible thing where I'm like, ah, maybe I, maybe I won't do that here. So that's, that's a point where it's like, Hey, live view doesn't work well for this, but I also then feel the pain of like, all right, I need to add an, add a concept to my GraphQL endpoints build the build all the things that like go into that now i need to build the front end and have my typescript bindings for that now i need to write my react component that loads the data correctly reloads the data correctly like i feel the pain of that and it makes me want to have live view but i'm also not in a place where i can really use it effectively because of the chrome extension aspects okay so so we talked a little bit about about real-time Phoenix and then about live view. And so it's almost like we're going in the opposite direction of what you'd expect a book trajectory to go, right? It's uh, that we're going from from the um, like the top of the food chain to kind of language adoption. And, and so what's up with that, Steve? Yeah, so both... Both of these books I've written at moments of um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. So real-time Phoenix, I was talking to a friend about starting a company in, you know, whenever I started writing that book. So like, what is that? Probably 2019, uh, I was starting to write that. So we're, we were talking, we were pretty serious about it. But I, I hit this point where I was like, you know, I'm not ready to do this right now. Like, like, even though it sounds really exciting, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I can't make that leap right now. And I wanted to save sales loft as well. And so I just hit this point where I was like, what do I do? Like, I need to do something else. Like, I, like I need to have like a project and um, that's where the book came from. I mean, it was literally like, I need a project and I don't want to build right now i just want to like do something else and that's where the writing came from and that was the same thing for from ruby to elixir because i mentioned i was building something for 18 months like it did not work out it was not necessarily good it was not a good end result i was like i really liked the tech we could not sell it it was you know i could evaluate all the different things that happened that caused that but uh we had like zero dollars in sales after 18 months. I left that company and I was like, shoot, what do I do with myself? And I was like, I, I was pretty burnt out at this time. I was like, you know, at a minimum, I'm gonna take a couple months off. And I was like, yeah, this book shouldn't be too hard to write. Let me like, let me pitch it up and see what happens. Shouldn't and, be too hard, famous last words of any yeah, book author. Yeah. And and I was also planning on having time to write it. And what ended up happening is I left uh I left the startup in like August and I started a new startup in October. So I thought I was going to have like four months and I ended up having like one month, which uh, I was just like, that, that was me just like planning and, and like relaxing. I didn't even actually get to writing in that time. So anyway, that's like where the book came from and, and really um, why that book, you know, Sophie said earlier, this idea of a lived experience so real-time Phoenix was a lived experience and you could call it like 
real time Phoenix and anger, right? It was like, I was, I was, uh, I was very excited and, and proud about what he built, but I was like, Oh, that was, that was a little tougher than it should have been. Let me write about it. And, uh, from Ruby to Elixir also is, is lived experiences. It is basically how I came into Elixir, you know, coming in from the Ruby on rails background, learning the basics, like learning, you know, pattern matching and the syntax and a little bit of processes but not being able to actually put it into practice and build something. And the, the, the formula for this book is like the first section has two parts. The first part is like learning the language and learning some of the concepts. And part two is actually, Hey, let's like, those things are cool. Let's talk about the, the libraries that you use to build an application because you need to be able to actually put everything together and build something with without even worrying about processes without worrying about any of the complex things like I'm just building a web application and once I started doing that and once I had approached you know learning elixir that way that that's what like broke me through to actually learn it versus trying to learn the concepts and learning the theory of it and so this book is effectively that process put into written form yeah, I, I love how you are talking about kind of drawing it from, okay, well, when I actually needed to build an application, when I actually needed to create libraries to use and the things I was building, that's when, uh, you know, you really felt like you learned it. And I've definitely had that same experience. And I probably shouldn't say this um, as an author and as someone that tries to support other people to write books. Um, reading books is not my preferred way to learn things, or at least not only that, if I don't have something that I have to be building, usually like in my day job, it's kind of going to go in one ear and out the other for me. And so that was exactly what happened um, in my own journey towards Elixir. So I first became aware of Elixir because uh, I too was working at a place where I had a coworker who just got really excited about this cool thing that he learned and wouldn't, you know, it was the one and only Steven Nunez. And, you know, I kind of was like, okay, you want to show me this thing? That's awesome. Oh, power matching. So cool. Concurrency tasks. Um, you know, great, but also like, you know, in the 10 minutes of free time I have today, I'm interested in this. And then the rest of the time I'm, you know, doing the job that I have to show up and get paid to do. But, um, at that same company, Stephen and I were working together on the engineering team at the Flatiron School. And that's where we started actually building with Elixir. And then, and this is why I'm so excited for this book. And I'm so excited that you're here, Steve. We went through this process ourselves and we went through it with, you know, like a dozen of our teammates, which is to go from Ruby to Elixir and to build things and ship them. Um, and I have, you know, so many thoughts about what made that process, you know, easy and fun and what made it successful, but I kind of want to flip that script a little bit. And I want to hear from you about what the hard parts of that journey were and your experience or, you know, what you anticipate people struggling with when they come to your book. Yeah. I love that story, by the way, Sophie. So thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. and it's cool that, that Steven is the one that introduced it to you. That's, oh yeah. That's, it's all his fault. <laughs> wild zealot is my message. yes i was told there would be pizza i've complained about this before if i stayed after work and learned about elixir uh and i'm still waiting on that pizza wait a minute <laughs> yeah so so what is the thing that people will have a hard time with so 
one of the ideas of this book is like from Ruby to Elixir. So it's assuming some level of Ruby experience. Actually, I would just put that on the record. At, I actually view it more as an Elixir beginner book. But if you have a Ruby experience, some of the concepts will like attach better. But it's let's say you never used Ruby and you're like, I'm a, I use Java, but I understand the concept of asynchronous jobs. You're like, okay, like you're, you're, you're in the same spot basically. So you have people that have some experience. And so they have these concepts that they're familiar with. And I just think those things will, they'll be able to attach to those concepts better and we'll have an easier time learning those concepts, which means that the concepts that they're not familiar with because they haven't seen them before will be more difficult. So the two big ones that come to mind are like the pedestal of OTP where you're like OTP, like number one, it's called, you know, was like open telecom platform. That sounds intimidating as heck. So, uh, you're like, am I like, what am I gonna have to, what am I gonna be learning telecom to do this? Right. And it's sort of like, all right, like OTP is just a set of libraries. Think of it as like almost like the standard libraries for the beam. And so simplifying that and just being like, don't really worry about that. The only thing you have to worry about with OTP is making sure that your versions match up correctly, like when you're installing it. And let's say that that's like, that's like the minimum thing that you need to start with to build an application. You'll learn more over time. And then the other thing is um, just this idea, like it extends a little bit of OTP, but going into the idea of like gen server specifically, not even process, because when most people hear about Elixir, they don't hear about processes because that sounds so common that you're not even going to really register it. But you keep hearing the, the term gen server, right? And so that also gets like, becomes a little bit of this like mythical thing that you're working with. Oh, I need to use, I need to use gen servers because I'm an Elixir, right? I need to figure out how to use these in my application. And the book, you know, there's a, there's a chapter all about processes and gen servers, but in reality, I'd say, you know, one of the goals of the book is to get people to put that to the side and say, the libraries that you use will use OTP and use gen servers correctly. You don't need to worry about that right now. You just need to figure out like how to use these libraries and you need to know the terms of OTP and of gen server. And you need to know how like processes work, because if you're the one that's actually shipping the application into production, when something goes wrong, you're going to see an error message and you need to be able to like have an index in your head of where to go but you don't need to know what the content is. You need to have that index established. And I, th I think once people like, once I put aside OTP, put aside gen server, uh, that really simplified the learning process for me. And it's not saying that you don't need to learn it or that you shouldn't know it. I guess it's just an order of operations. It's like, you can build an app without worrying about that. And eventually you'll need to worry about it and you'll be better equipped when you get there because you're going to have the like elixir concepts in your head by that point. I want to distill everything you just said into just like a little card that I can print out and hand to people. That was so well said. Um, I think one of the things that drives me kind of nuts and I find really frustrating when you're talking about elixir adoption is a lot of the initial resistance I'll get from people kind of come down to, well, you know, I don't think I really need all the power of at OTP. I don't think I really need all that fault tolerance. I'm not really going to use gen servers. And I'm like, incorrect. But 
also kind of correct. You're not going to necessarily build your own, uh, you know, usage of gen servers to make everything highly concurrent and fault tolerant and like distributed and massively scalable. You're going to get that for free because you're using Phoenix, which is using, you know, cowboy for its web server or pool boy for your database connection pooler. Um, you're going to get that stuff for free. And that's kind of, it's really hard to drive that home for people because it's, it's hidden and it's hidden in a way that is good for you as a developer, because then you don't really need to know, you don't need to know how to build cowboy. I couldn't sit down tomorrow and build this, you know, amazingly concurrent web server. But like you said, you do need to know how to use it. You need to understand enough of the basics and the principles of OTP that you can leverage it most effectively and so that you can operate these systems if you're deploying them into production. Um, but it, that's kind of like a fine line to walk. Uh, you're gonna get the benefits of these things without having to become experts in them, but you need to know enough of how it works to effectively maintain it. And that's a really hard balance to strike. And I think that's where your book is gonna kind of fill a huge need that exists in our community, especially when it comes to evangelizing Elixir and pushing its adoption. Yeah, I'm going to second what you said, Steve, and also, Sophie, what you said. I mean, the whole idea that we're relying on, on others to implement the libraries that, that we rely on to make things concurrent and reliable, that's, that's extremely powerful. And I also want to talk a little bit about this idea that language matters, that this, this whole idea of the acronym behind OTP, which isn't doesn't have anything to do with telecom and, and which you know our solution in, in the community is to say, hey, it's not really OTP anymore. And then not fill that space, right? It's like, what is it then? Well, it's three letters. Don't worry about what they do. Uh, it's like it's almost like we are afraid of of our our roots. And this power of language has an inverse power too over Elixir developers, right? So if you have like a Ruby or a JavaScript or a Java developer, they're not afraid of inversion of control. It happens all the time. And it happens in um, pretty pretty pivotal places in the language. And for, for Elixir developers, it happens in Live View and it happens in OTP. We don't need to be afraid of that. And in fact, our documentation is well constructed to call out the life cycles with something called callbacks, right? Is but we just don't, we haven't built the vocabulary and the the language around understanding those concepts. And so it's so Elixir is mostly a really, really friendly language for learning. And it has these blind spots that um, that we we have to kind of help our our students get over. Yeah, I'll jump in here because I got some things to say. Uh, welcome to Stephen's Rant Corner. Um, a couple of things. I like the idea of going towards the or thinking about the latest responsible moment to like learn something. Um, it's kind of like partially an act of faith from the, the teammate or the team member and something that I had success with uh, when sort of in, introducing some of these things and saying just, hey, focus on this controller action. Focus on your context function. I've had people ask me like, hey, but when do we get to like, you know, make the OTP? When do we get to use all that fun stuff? Don't worry about it. Just do the thing. Focus on your own ecto, do the ecto thing. Just sort of like put a bit of a blinder on. Um, and I think you do need someone or something that is 
there to let you know that it's okay to not focus on those things because there's just the big wall of all things OTP, uh, base, you know, base Erlang uh, languages, popular libraries, right? There's just like, nope, you're doing an Ecto thing, right? Uh, you know, schemaless change set, and that's it. This is where you are. Um, so I, I'm hoping that like you're, you know, the the book and then additional teaching sort of like give that confidence that like, hey, this thing is is fine to focus on, right? Focus on your, you know, if you're doing a CRC, which, you know, Bruce has written about, if you're doing, just think about the structure of your code on this like functional level. And hey, if you need to make this call, it's making an OTP call, but you don't care. It's just doing the thing. Um, so I, I, I like that. And I think that that's sort of the right approach for doing that transition because there are just so many concepts that exist in, like on the beam in general that don't exist um, in the same way in the on the Ruby interpreter or Ruby platform um, that are incredibly powerful, but can kind of like make someone be like, this is too much. And then secondly, just this is just, this grinds my gears. The idea that, that uh, using uh, the beam or Elixir specifically um, is disqualified because it's too powerful is one of the, the biggest things that just annoy me to hell. Uh, and in short, it's because, you know, you get that much power without, uh, without a lot. If you do the, if you follow the, um, the, the process that we're talking about now, which is focus on the thing that you're building again, you're building a live view. Hey, there are life cycles, there's events, do that. You don't have to worry about everything else. You get so much by just using uh, the built-in libraries for free, essentially, because the primitives are really good and getting better every single day. So this idea that like, oh, I don't need all this stuff is like, but why would you not just take it? It's not going to cost you anything. The abstractions are beautiful. Anyway, rant over. I love all that because I see this a lot. And I see it. Um, I don't want to get into like the idea of Kubernetes, but like one of the things you often see is, well, I have Kubernetes, I'm already using Kubernetes and you're sort of describing the beam that way. Why do I need to worry about that? And that's like, um, that's like one objection you see from people. And you also see again, like they're just, I don't need, I don't need X. I don't need to worry about this other thing. And you're right that the, that you don't need to worry about it. And then, but then part of the reason I got into Elixir, and I think this is the important thing is like you hit moments where you're like, I really wish I could do X. And it's just like such a simple thing. Example of this at SalesLoft, our most requested database resource was for like team. It was like, you know, one of those objects that every single request is going to load because it's a multi-tenant SaaS application. And you have to load it fresh because you need to make sure you have up-to-date data. And like, I just wanted to have a cache that, that lived in memory that had its own like data life cycle where I could, you know, receive updates from some external source, update the cache, you know, have in, you know, invalidation cycles and whatnot. And, and we had something like we ended up building something that was like a cache sort of, but it did half of what I wanted it to do. And it would literally have taken me 15 minutes to write in, in Elixir. And it was something that like we could not write. And, and we were very focused on like, fixing some performance issues. And so we would have spent a lot building it and we just like literally could not build it. And so it was one of those moments where it's like, I really wish I had this thing that I didn't need until now. This application has been around for five years, didn't need it. And I really wish I had it and I don't. And that's that's one reason why I really just love Elixir. I have all these things at my disposal.
That is so well said. It is so well said. I kind of want to get into this idea that that we're starting with with a um, like a complex book. So it's almost like what you're doing is that you're taking those those bits of complexity and you're letting somebody else write them and you're letting more people have access to the ideas that you had in the first book, right? By adopting frameworks that are built this stuff in more powerfully. So can you talk about the idea that your writing journey has kind of mirrored some of the developer's journey in, in the Elixir space where we don't have to write as much we don't have to build as much as you used to. And that's opening the door to um, to more Elixir developers. Yeah, this is a <clears throat> this is a big thing in the community, I would say. This idea of really thinking about adoption. So is it people that are taking people that are experienced that have been doing Elixir for a couple of years? And then you know, those people saying, How do we get people to adopt this? Like, let's take a step back and look at sort of the whole picture about how people learn about why they'd come to elixir in the first place why would they leave elixir like um why do they not want to adopt it and so you have a lot of people that are spending their thought power on this and you know i the ways i see this manifest are in like um you know some of the you know smartest people in elixir doing things like hey we're gonna improve the way documentation works improve the way error messages works not really for us, but for beginners that are coming into the language, because they already know the things that they would need to know. Um, and but like the beginners need to learn and they're having they're struggling with that. Or you have people that are doing, uh, um, I don't know, just I, I see this in, you know, live view to me. Part of live view is um, bridging the gap for UI engineers to start doing things on the server, because you know, if you have to build an API, build all the binding, like all the different hoops you have to do, you might look at like, as a UI engineer, you might look at like server programming and air quotes there, because, you know, that's sort of like the, the terms you might see, but like this backend programming uh, becomes a chore versus live view. In a lot of ways, you can get adopted into that and start learning about how to do things on the server, learning about Elixir at the same time, while you're building a front end, you're bringing UI engineers into the, into the back end and like making them full stack engineers. And then finally, I see this in, um, in like the machine learning advancements where, you know, part of that is like, if you wanted to bring, I, I don't think people are doing this to like lure people in from other ecosystems. That's not the point of it. But if you wanted to to bring, you know, Python developers over into Elixir, like you need to have an answer to a lot of the machine learning things. And you just see all of this is happening like simultaneously, which is awesome. Like different people, really smart people that have spent years on Elixir, that have spent years learning, you know, really hard lessons are distilling that into simpler things for beginners to come into language. And it's really exciting time in Elixir right now, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like we're getting critical mass, but not like we expected to, right? It's, it's like, rather than finding a way to hook the unwary developer into the Elixir language, what's happened is that so many people have gotten the abstractions right, that we're starting to have this kind of tornado of ideas that are happening to work together 
in ways that we didn't plan or expect, right? Mm. And so then we're seeing incremental gains, but we're seeing those incremental gains in along so many different fronts. The internet of things, right? The notebook for learning, the notebook for research, the machine learning, kind of the, the machine learning um, building of new models, the consumption of models with Bumblebee, the live view, um, and then all the, the different expansions in live view. You talked about forms and, and these multi-layer forms, which you had to, to drop into code to do, and now we can do those. And then, you know, all the auto uploads and JavaScript compatibility, and now you're talking about native, and all of these abstractions work together, right? Because we have we have the core system. So yeah, I'm pretty excited. And, and I think I don't know much about machine learning, but like, as you said this, I think a good example of this is um, I knew this was something that I've seen a lot of companies struggle with. And the struggle is in um, getting data into the model, which you can then train it on, and then actually productionizing the model and doing something real with it. And that's where a lot of teams struggle. And that is exactly how it all comes together in Elixir. Like you have, you know, robust parallel systems that can like ingest data, transform it, feed it into a model all in the same language, run those models, and then actually then ship a version of that model into production in your Elixir app and have it all come together. And, um, you know, you, you can stay in one language and that's, it's just everything coming together. Like you said, that's, it's, it's a great, great point. Yeah. And I think one thing that, that um, I want to kind of call out in this, like this uh, progression of using or choosing to choose Elixir um, and the beam as the platform is that, you know, you could start out relatively simple as far as infrastructure goes with some of this stuff, right. Ingesting data and then training a model. And then as your needs grow, you can scale not only to make that individual machine, stronger, but you can spread out some more specialized machines to do training to that import. And the call sites for local function calls and remote function calls in a distributed system look the same, right? The PID changes, the node is referenced. And I think that that's a really powerful concept that you can start having these systems that start out relatively straightforward. They have a level of complexity that is what was the allure to come over to the beam. But then you say, oh, actually, I want to, you know, handle, um, you know, the the logic I want to actually for the mobile app, I want to handle in a different place. I want to optimize for a certain set of, of features when I'm training things. I want to actually run it on a machine that has a ton of GPUs and run the same application, but then make calls to those registered nodes. Um, and you get that stuff for free, right? Whether you use Kubernetes or not to kind of like do deployment and sort of like the, the gluing together. Um, those things are built in as primitives in the beam, which I think is, the, I think that that is the glue that's sort of missing is like, let's, let's go on a journey and say, like, you start out building this product and like really take advantage of the distribution features and the specialized hardware. Now that we have all these different use cases. So mm. uh, I wanted to call that out, but I think that that's something that's really um, available to people if they choose to work on the beam. I really like that idea of the journey of your application because like that's something that's not in the book, but I feel like I, I need to add that in the beginning almost. It's like you, you're coming in from, from Ruby to Elixir. Like, what is this journey going to be like? Like what's the evolution of your app that you'd be building and how does that change over time as you add new features, as you learn new things and showing people that you can 
build and ship an app way early that's like you don't know all these things and then you need x you need y you need z you need and you're just adding things as you need it and you have it all at your disposal i love that like framing the journey for people and showing them how it can be and that it gives you a new dimension in in how you do that scaling right where today maybe we'd reach for like a microservice it's like well i need another service well and then i need a a back-end async messaging you know cute kafka or rabbit or something it's beam radio so rabbit of course um <laughs> So, and then it kind of like minimizes, it it minimizes the pain to make that choice to split something off because you have those primitives built in. So I've been thinking about the kind of wrapping up this journey and the idea that we talked about, it's smooth, but it's not simple at the very beginning, right? And then we're talking about all the ways that it wasn't, that um, that Ruby isn't isn't simple and, and reasons to move from Ruby to Elixir, right? We talked about the, the scalability, the um, the self-healing software and OTP. We've talked about with, with Stephen, the distribution. And I don't think that those journeys are over yet, right? So you think about all the disqualifying reasons for not adopting a language, probably the biggest one that we've, we've heard you know, the biggest two that we've heard are, well, you can't do numerical processing in something like Elixir, right? You'd be nuts to. And now we are, right? Because the abstractions were right, because we, you know, the protocols and, and the behaviors underneath and um, and macros allowed us to do the depth ends and everything. But the other disqualifying feature or lack of feature in Elixir that people talk about is the type system. And uh, Jose just made this announcement that the research type system has moved from pure research into the development branch of Elixir. And I don't know what our limits are anymore, you know? <laughs> and that's that's pretty exciting to me. That's very exciting. I agree with you. That's, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a very exciting time in Elixir. And a lot of this stuff feels like it's just getting started, but it's it's already so powerful and it's just getting started, which is blows my mind a little bit. Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks for, for coming on with us today. Uh, really excited for your book. I'm really excited to see what effect it has on, you know, giving people that path from Ruby um, to Elixir. And I would say that from Ruby uh, is a big net as well, because Ruby is a very readable language and the concepts are just generalized to OO principles. So OO developers, come on over. To Elixir. Steve, if people want to find you on the internet, uh, what's the best place to reach it? Uh, I, I feel shame in saying this, but it's still uh, probably on Twitter. Uh, they can you can find me on there. Uh, oh, sorry, on X. Uh, it's still Twitter.com. I guess maybe if I go to X.com, it'll still work too. Uh, so yeah, find me. I'm still going to call it Twitter. Find me on Twitter. I, I'm Yoda on, on Twitter with, with four O's and four A's. And that's 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 my handle. That's probably the, the 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 number one place I'm doing things. And then both, I'll just say this, both books, Real Time Phoenix and From Ruby to Elixir have threads on Elixir Forum and on DevTalk. And so those are great places where if you are reading them and you run into a question, even whatever your question might be related to the book or not, those are great places to ask those because um, I get pinged on those and I'll, I'll always answer anything that, that you tag me in. Awesome. And I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors, Groxio, Career Fuel for Programmers, and Andriorge. Take care, everyone. And that's a wrap. There we go. Steve, we did thanks. It. That was a lot of fun. Yes, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed that. <laughs>